There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kramitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch with Greg Kraminski and Colin Andrews. Greg, good to have you back after skipping a week. That's right. I took a week off. It was great. You guys did a great job, as everyone will hear today. Yeah. So last week, we had Blair Howell on, and he and I talked about the difference between investing in an RRSP and a TFSA, as that's a question that comes up a lot and the different investment strategies for each of those account structures. And we also held a webinar last week addressing those same questions. So that webinar is available for download. So if anybody wants to watch it, let us know and we'll send you the link. But today we're going a completely kind of different direction. We're going to focus on the bond market. And we are so pleased to have join us today, Mark Goldfried. And Mark, welcome. Hey, Colin. Hey, Greg. How are you? Good, good. Now, I want to give the listeners a little background on you, and you tell me if I'm right or wrong on it. But you're joining us from Toronto, correct? Yes, that's true. And do you refer to Toronto as the Big Smoke, T-Dot, the home of Drake, the home of the Maple (laughs) Leafs, and much music? Or how do you refer to Toronto? I just use the old Toronto accent, Toronto. 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 (laughs) So, Mark, you are the Chief Investment Officer and Head of Fixed Income for Canoe Financial. I think I got that right as well. Yeah, that's right. So welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us today. We're really pleased to have you on as we start into this new year or we're early into the new year and we're getting a lot of questions about fixed income because of all the volatility that's present in all markets. But before we get into that, maybe Mark, you can tell us, tell us your story. How did you end up where you are today? What's your background and how did you become the guru of fixed income? It's a story of luck and I think some hard work. So Greg and Colin, I was fortunate enough to attend university in the 1980s. I was unfortunate enough to graduate from university in 1990, which Colin probably won't remember, but Greg will remember as a fairly difficult recession year. Proudly, I sold industrial chemicals for about six to eight months while I looked desperately for a job in the financial industry. Having a background in economics, I was hoping at the time, I wanted to be a stockbroker. I didn't know what it meant. I knew I wanted to be in the investment business. I'd watched Wall Street. I remember Charlie Sheen bragging about making $50,000 a year. And I thought, hey, I want to make $50,000 a year. And that looks interesting to me. And I had a joy for economics and markets. And I was fortunate enough to get a job in the accounting department at a company called Elliott & Page. And you'll find at the sort of top of the house in the investment business, there's two kinds of guys. They're the guys that scratch their way from accounting departments, customer service, and a portfolio manager. And we're fortunate enough to get a break. And there's a lot of guys that had good connections to get into this business. I was one of the other. They're both good guys. They're just different type of people. So I was one of the ones that moved in and was 1991. I was the junior on the desk at Elliott and Page. That was a pretty storied mutual fund company that was eventually owned by Manulife. And I did the jack of all trades. I mean, it was really a credit research analyst focused on U.S. corporate bonds and U.S. asset-backed securities. But in that world at that time, 
I traded stocks when the stock trader wasn't away. I did securities lending in the repo market. I managed our money market fund periodically. I filled in on the bond desk. I got everybody's bagels. I got yelled at. <laughs> I had to figure out how to strip out the yield curve just for a make work project to make the portfolio manager happy. And guys, you'll laugh at this. When I started in the business, four of us shared one Dow Jones Tellerate monitor to find out where the market was. We had no Bloomberg and we used calculators to calculate bond yields. Now, I'm not old enough to say I use the books, but I was definitely around pre-Bloomberg. And that time at Elliott and Page was great. I cut my teeth as a research analyst, learned a lot about corporate bonds, about credit spreads, about balance sheets and income statements. And I worked my way up into a portfolio manager role where I moved away from the U.S. stuff onto the Canadian domestic stuff. I left there in 1999. I was like 25 years, maybe 27, 28 years old. And I went to a company called Aegon, which is a large Dutch financial services company. And that's really where I built the big part of my career. Cut my teeth at Elliott Page for, I think it was about nine years. I spent 17 years at Aegon and we managed, by the time I left, close to $11.5 billion. I was eventually the head of fixed income and chief investment officer there. Managed multi-billion dollar portfolios for the life insurance company, had third-party clients in the institutional business. And we had a little mutual fund company with a bond fund called the IMAX Canadian Bond Fund, which if anyone ever looks at, we'll see that it had a very long storied, spectacular track record based on the way I ran Canadian bond funds. I met Canoe Financial in 2011. It was a, basically a brand new t- company with a big closed end fund called EIT, which was about a billion and a half dollars. And they were looking to advance their way into the open-ended mutual fund business. And I won the beauty contest. We launched the <laughs> Bond Advantage Fund. They were hiring sub-advisors. They had some internal management, but they didn't know what to do with fixed income. I had a great track record and I was fortunate enough to win that business. And we launched a few funds with them out of the gate. And then we brought in our partners from Aegon USA to launch our global income fund in high yield. And now Canoe, nine years later, it's 2011 to 2020, it's an 8.7 or $8.8 billion of assets under management with a fully fleshed out lineup. I left Aegon in 2015, and then I came to Canoe and they hired me as their chief investment officer and had a fixed income. So I knock on wood and I'll say this, I have no ego about this job. I don't do brain surgery. I don't run into burning buildings. It's been a great job that pays well, but I think it's important to keep your feet on the ground, stick to your knitting, do what you do well, avoid what you don't do well. And those are the kind of constructs that sort of directed me as a portfolio manager. I can't be all things to all people. And in the end, the most important thing I do for you guys and your clients is I execute a fiduciary duty. And that means I'm placed in a position of trust and Everything I do or say is to minimize capital loss and maximize return for the clients. They are first, and that's the most important thing for us. Well, I'm sure that's music to the ears of our clients and anyone who's listening to this, Mark. Listen, let me ask you a question because you've detailed quite a large number of years in the bond and the fixed income business. Can you tell us just a little bit about the size of the bond markets globally? A lot of people, I think, don't really understand how big the bond market really is. So maybe you could just put some perspective around that to get started. So the bond market, just as a being, as a entity, is it's huge. Likely, probably nine or ten times the size of the market capitalization. I'm going to be giving you guys weirdo, crazy numbers, but when we even talk about 
negative sovereign, negative government yielding debt, that number 17, $18 trillion. And if you think about the bond market is the public market for all borrowings that happen at either the corporate, the government, municipal, provincial level, all around the world. So it's multi, multi, multi trillions of dollars with massive amounts of liquidity in certain parts of the market, less liquidity in other parts of the market. And it's varied. There's all types of risk. Buying a government bond generally means you're guaranteed to get paid at the end. Buying a corporate bond, you get paid more to be in a corporate bond because it has more risk. It's a promise to pay. And that's where portfolios are constructed and defined. And Greg, so it's a large, large market that I think to a lot of clients or a lot of investors feels very, very commoditized. Like every bond is the same as the next. And what I'm trying to explain here is not only is it large, it is a massive spectrum of risk in terms of volatility versus changes in interest rates, what happens at the corporate level, at the company level, what happens at the consumer level in terms of borrowing against credit cards and autos and the housing market. So it touches a part of almost all of our lives. Well, that's interesting because when you turn on the news at the end of the day, What do they show in the news? They show where the Dow Jones is, where the TSX is. They talk about, I don't know, where the Canadian dollar is, the price of oil. Maybe they might mention gas, but nobody ever references the bond market in the news. So in your seat, that must seem strange because I read a book years ago called The Ascent of Money, and it talked about how the end of the civil... Niall Ferguson. That's a great, yeah, it's good great. book. And it talked about how the end of the Civil War came from the devaluation of cotton bonds and the Confederates went broke and that ended the Civil War. I don't know if that's true. That's what I read, but. Sounds reasonable. Seems reasonable. <laughs> but on that, can you give us a lay of the land as it pertains to the economy, the bond market, and interest rates? Because none of that is reported in your local news channel. First off, let's all agree the bond world is a lot less sexy than the equity world. Let's also agree there's a truckload of actual math behind how yields are calculated, how prices are calculated, how prices move in the inverse relation to their yields, i.e. when yields go down, prices go up, and the opposite, when yields go up, prices go down. I think it's just, it's a difficult structure for people to get their head around. The other thing is is a stock market is what we call, it's an actual market. It's a tech market. So every time a stock trades, it's reported, the volume's reported. We know where it finishes at the end of the day at four o'clock. Very easy to get your head around that. And I think it's pretty easy to get your head around the construct of buy high, sell low. Sorry, Jesus. <laughs> Wait a minute. Okay, hey, listen, 30 years doing this, trust me, don't buy high and sell low. Go the other way, buy low and sell high. Meaning that I think it's easy for investors to get their head around. Here's a company and it's got these kinds of prospects and it's got this belief in how it's going to grow its earnings. And they can see, well, if I buy it today and it's at a multiple of X and I expect it to get to a multiple of Y, I'm going to make money. When you get in the bond world, it's weird. You've you got a coupon on your bond. You got a price at par that are $100 at issuance. And then the next second when the bonds trade, the yield changes, the price changes, they move in inverse relation to each other. And I'll say the other thing, thing is it's very hard for the individual investor to get involved in the bond market on their own on a security by security basis. So you just don't find the same kind of knowledge of sophistication out of the investor base on the bond market. I think they look at it as a necessary evil. 
I think you guys understand under the, all the compliance rules that rule how you how you structure a portfolio and understanding what your client's appetite for risk is. And you as a fiduciary say, okay, guys, look, based on your appetite for loss and your return requirements and your time horizon, we think a portfolio that's 65% stocks and 35% bonds makes sense. And your clients go, well, what do we need the bonds for? Interest rates are almost zero. I get 2% for that bond. Why would I be in that? Why wouldn't I just be in the stock market? And what I'll tell you is because generally speaking, bonds are in your portfolio for three distinct reasons. And I hate to be repetitive because I know Greg and Colin have heard this before, but you own bonds for enhancement of income, enhancement and generation of income. You buy them for downside protection because they move in the opposite direction of stocks. And I could get deep on why that is, and maybe that is a conversation worth having. Three, the point I just made is that the bond market or risk-free rate market or interest rate market, whatever you want to call it, counter-correlates equity market volatility. And what I'm really trying to say in the easiest terms is bonds are an asset class that are going to always produce cash flow, which helps with the downside protection. Yields tend to move in the opposite direction of economic strength or economic weakness, meaning that when the economy is weak, yields tend to drop and bond prices tend to go up. So what those bonds are in your portfolio is really a volatility regulator, and it allows for smoothing of returns when you get into volatile, unpredictable times, like we saw in March of last year when COVID really hit markets and we started to see some real degradation in the economy and the expectations on the output of the economy. But in March of this last year that you referenced, there were investors that said, well, look, the stock market was down 35% in 14 days or whatever it was, and the bond market went down as well. So see, like I wasn't safe. Why didn't it protect me? Can you comment on that? Yeah, I absolutely can. So let me just back up a step. And what I'm going to say is something similar to what I said before. The bond market is not commoditized. Not every bond is exactly the same. And we have government bonds. And just real briefly, government of Canada, federal government of the United States, they have the power of taxation and they have a central bank that can print money that has confidence from the rest of the world. So when the United States Treasury issues a bond or the government of Canada issues a federal bond, you can pretty much say that your principal is good and your interest is good. Okay, So there's no doubt that you're going to get your money back. And the interest rate that is paid on that at the government level is really for market participants like myself that decide based on the future economic fundamentals of that country and how much inflation, how much yield do we need. So a government bond is what we call risk-free bond, okay? So that's a AAA-rated bond. Then you got a provincial government, for example. Now, provincial government, I don't think anybody on this phone call is going to come to the conclusion that we expect a provincial to default. But we have to remember that although a provincial government can tax or state government in the United States can tax, they don't employ a central bank and they don't have currency or currency reserves. So there's an element of credit risk. And there is a chance when you lend money to a province or a state of California or whatever, that you could lose money. It's very, very unlikely. Now let's move to the next set of investment grade corporations, big banks, big pipeline companies, big utilities, they also borrow. Now, when they borrow, they provide us what's called a prospectus. And there's a bunch of what we call covenants, which are protections of the bondholder. But in essence, when I lend money to a corporation or a province, they are providing me a promise to pay. 
So I'm going to require a premium over what I would get out of the similar maturity. So if I'm buying a 10-year government bond, I'm getting 1%. I'm buying a 10-year bank bond, I'm getting 1.5%. It's probably different numbers, but I'm just trying to throw it out there to just to make the, sure. the difference. And that extra 50 basis points I'm getting is compensating me for the credit risk that I'm taking. So now you're talking double A and single A bonds and you get in the triple B space, Husky Energy, Suncor. Now they're businesses that produce gigantic amounts of cash flow, but are tied to a singular commodity and they can have real changes in their business and business fundamentals. So I'm going to get an extra hundred basis points for Suncor. Now I'm investing at 2% as opposed to 1%, but I'm taking credit risk. And let me ask you a question. Does Suncor do better in a bad economy or in a good economy? Greg, you want to take this one? Let's say a good economy. Yeah. Okay. Fair <laughs> enough. Without throwing any weird Alberta stuff on top of it. And I get it. So, so Suncor does well in a good economy and Suncor is going to be expected to do less well or produce less cash flow in a poor economy. So when you get into a world where the economic outcomes are starting to look more shaky, guys like me go, okay, you know what? A hundred over for Suncor bonds isn't enough anymore. Now I need 125 or 130. And that move from 100 basis to 130, remember what I told you guys earlier, when yields go up, prices go down, you start to get some principal degradation in those corporate bonds. So now we've only gone down to triple B, which is investment grade. Then there's a whole world out there, which in the old Mike Milliken days was called the junk bond market, but now we call it the high yield market, which is a really clean, nice way of calling Companies that borrow with eight, nine, 10 times leverage on their balance sheet and a 30, 40% probability of going out of business, a bond, but it is a bond, but it is highly correlated to the economy. So the further down that risk spectrum you go in bonds, the more you get paid in cash flow, but the more credit risk. So let me just take a step back and just say, we're in a really weird world now. And we were in a really weird world for the previous 10 years. For the majority of my career, I've only seen interest rates go lower, but there was still interest rates, 4% 10-year Canada bonds or 5% 10-year US bonds. But what happened after the great financial crisis is we had a commitment out of the Federal Reserve Board and other monetary policy authorities around the world in an effort to create economic growth and reflate the economy. They all went into very, very easy monetary policy mode. And what that did was they drove interest rates down to zero. So your overnight rate where banks lend money to each other, not you and I, goes down to zero. That drags all the yields on the yield curve down. Five years at 60 basis points, 10 years at 1%, long 30-year bonds at 1.2, 1.3%. And all those corporate bonds I described earlier that have a premium to the treasury rate, are coming down in yield level as well. Then on top of that, you've got a mentality in the market, which is called don't fight the Fed. And when the Fed's standing in there, regardless of what the economic outcome is, people tend to lean further and further into risk assets. So what I'm trying to describe to you guys is there was a time in Greg's career, my career, where you built a bond portfolio for a client that needed that downside protection, that generation of income. And you were able to buy primarily government bonds or very high-grade investment-grade corporate bonds and produce a 4 5 6% cash flow for them and take very little in the way of default, or like loss of money risk. And those people could live on 4 5 6%. Well, when you take your yields, your treasury yields or your government yields down to 
40, 50, 60 basis points. And then everybody believes the Fed's going to save every company and nobody believes there's risk and you wield those credit risk premiums into tight levels, you're incented as an investor to lean further and further into risk to try to replicate that cash flow income you had in the past. So I think what happened in March is that a lot of clients' bond portfolios, although hitting all the necessary notes on a compliance basis, i.e. they own fixed income, and it is the downside protection, had a lot of exposure to triple B rated credit a lot of exposure to high yield, a lot of exposure to floating rate loans. And you think about like they were absolutely paid to do that. They needed to lean into more amounts of risk because of the structure that has been in place for the last 10 years as monetary policy authorities have continued to ease and ease their policy in an effort to keep the economy at least producing two, two and a half percent growth and keeping deflationary pressure from entering the mindset of market participants. If you lose your inflation expectations, i.e. if inflation goes away completely, you become Japan. Now, that's not a bad place to live. They produce lots of growth. I shouldn't say they grow every year. They produce lots of economic output every year, but there's no inflation there and there's no capital investment. And there's lots of trouble that happens with that. So really to back up quickly and get back, the original question was, and I just went on a stairway to heaven, <laughs> my version is, Mark, bonds failed in the first quarter on the COVID trade. When equity markets went down 30%, some of my bond funds went down 5 6 7 8%. What I'd say to you guys is that's true, I think, in general, based on the kind of products that investors can buy in Canada for bonds. They are very, very long credit risk. And a lot of them have a lot of high yield mixed in there. There were lots of funds. The fund I run, the Canoe Bond Advantage Fund was up, I think, four or 5% when the equity market was down. But that's because we were bearish. We had less credit risk and we had more exposure to those dropping interest rates which really propelled. So what I'm trying to say is the old style bond fund that I grew up with in the 90s, which was primarily duration and government-based with a little bit of corporate bonds in it to add some yield, have really gone the other way now. They tend to have very, very short durations, not a lot of exposure to that, those interest rates. Yeah. So the thoughts really this is like, as we got lower and lower in interest rates, market participants rightly became more and more afraid that interest rates would go higher and they positioned that thesis into their bond portfolios. And I don't want to get into a math conversation, but duration in a bond portfolio measures the price sensitivity of that portfolio at change in interest rates. So the lower your duration, the less price sensitivity you have. And you want that if you think interest rates are going up because it's going to reduce the amount of loss you have. But if God forbid you have short duration and rates drop, well, then you don't have anything accelerating the price of the bonds in your portfolio. And then if you're doubly overexposed to high yield credit risk, you're going to end up with, because that high yield credit risk really acts like the equity market, even though it's a bond. I'm sorry, I'm putting my quotations up and I forgot that we're on a radio program. <laughs> that you're not going to get necessarily the outcome that you want. And I mean, one of the big advice that we had given clients and when I say clients, I mean really the advisor community that we talked to that then talks to the investors that we're dealing with today was look hard at your book, understand what duration you have. But let me tell you guys, there isn't a market participant who knew COVID was coming. There was no signal. And on that note, I've been doing this for 30 years, long enough that the 
bond that was the long bond when I started in the business is going to actually mature this year, the nine and three quarts of June 1, 21. Wait, so in English, that pays nine and three quarters percent? That's right. When I started in the business, the long bond had a 9.75% coupon on it. The current long bond has like about a 1.25% coupon on it. So (laughs) I went through a lot of stuff. Greg's lived the same thing as me. I mean, he told me how old he was about five minutes ago. I was actually quite shocked because I thought he was younger than that. But the inflation and interest rate spike in the early 90s, 1993-94, the Asian currency crisis, the echo in 98, long-term capital in 99, tech wreck, accounting crisis in 02, subprime crisis leading to the housing crisis, leading to the great financial crisis, all European sovereign debt, energy blowing up in 15. All of those things we would have all kind of thrown around that black swan term. This is the couldn't see this coming, but I can tell you guys for a hundred percent truth and fact, just watch, well, I can't remember what the name of the movie was, the big short or whatever. The signals were there. COVID, yeah. there was no signals. So people were getting sick in China in December. And by like February, we were talking about locking down the, the developed world economy. So I've never seen a 33% drop in GDP growth. I've never seen unemployment go from four to like 15. So that was the real black swan in my career. And I don't think guys could have anticipated COVID. Where we were at the end of 19 was, look, this is a soft economy. It's been supported by a pivot in the Federal Reserve Board from very hawkish policy to more accommodative policy. And we were concerned coming into 20 about valuations on stocks and high yield credit spreads. And the advice we were giving our clients was, look, think about lengthening your duration. I know it seems crazy because rates are at one and a half or two. And think about reducing a little bit of your high yield. And look, I got to tell you, I think we were dead right. We were concerned about liquidity in the bond market. That happened. But what we weren't right about was the massive, massive, massive monetary policy response out of the Fed and the combined fiscal policy around the world, specifically the CARES Act in the United States. And the combination of those two things fixed markets pretty quickly. That I can tell you. By the way, guys, I am spooked again. So, Oh, great. I'm sorry to hear that, but it is interesting, Mark. And having been through all of these bear markets that you identified starting in 1990 through to today. What's interesting is I read a lot of market commentary and there's a lot of people that say, oh, well, clearly the non-correlation or the benefit of owning bonds didn't work out because everything went down. They said that back in 2008 during the great financial crisis. And they said it in March because temporarily bond markets dropped off. And I think that kind of misses the point, doesn't it? I mean, when you look at a full year's return, the bond market did pretty well in 2008, and it did pretty well last year. Yep. And the fact that we went through a three-week or a one-month period where stocks and bonds were correlated is sort of irrelevant. I mean, that's very short-term, and that's just a sign of people selling everything other than a government bond. And Greg, so, at the time, the liquidity was so bad, it was hard to sell a government bond. I mean, and that's one of the reasons why the Fed came in with the bazooka response in March and April. So yes. you're 100% right that they're yeah, keep going. I'm sorry. I apologize. No, no. I just sort of building on your point that things get tense for a short period of time and then reason or massive liquidity from the Federal Reserve, some combination of those come back into the market. And I would say you would know better. Tell us, how did the bond market do last year? Depending on where you are. So I'm thinking about my own products. So in the core space, what I call the traditional style bond fund, which is longer duration, less credit risk, 
I think we produced a 8% after fees return, which I got to tell you guys, wow. I was an 8% return for a lot of years. So it was a really nice return. But even the stuff that your clients would have been going, oh my God, why do I own this? Because it was going down with the equity market. Still, some of it did five, seven, eight. And then there's some portfolio managers out there read the market really well, like Canso, which I'm really not in the world of pumping air into the tires of my competitors, but the Lee Sander guys went in light and then they recognized the power of the Fed and they leaned in heavily. So there were lots of great return profiles. I think you'd be pretty hard pressed to find any mutual fund in Canada that was fixed income that produced a negative rate of return in 2020. It's pretty remarkable, isn't it? When you consider what happened last year, I mean, and we're not even going to talk about equity markets. That's a whole multitude That's a of different show. podcasts, but it's pretty remarkable to come out of a year like that with anywhere from anything above zero up to 15, 16, 17% yep. out of bond portfolios. It's fantastic. So coming out of that now, and you addressed this a little bit earlier, why own bonds? But maybe we could recap for some of our clients because we hear a lot like people telling me I'm crazy. Why would I ever own a bond starting at interest rates of, in Canada, what is it? 0.8% on a 10-year government of Canada bond. So who would be crazy enough to hold those things? And what's the outlook? Where do you see a bond fund going at this point? And let's say a global fund. Canada's a little too limiting. Let's say global. So this is what I'd say to you guys. And we even use the term global bond fund. There's a massive spectrum in that Morningstar Canadian global category where you have guys that are primarily invested in government securities with durations that are close to the global aggregate benchmark of seven, eight years. Then you've got guys with very short duration portfolios with huge, huge bets on in credit and employing 30, 40% high yield in their funds. So all of those funds are going to perform a little differently. I think best way I can sort of describe my view here, and I don't know if you guys are going to love it or hate it, but it is transparently what I think. And I'll start the story off like this. Six weeks ago, in early December, I went to Scotland to visit my son because he lives there. And I quarantined and got stuck there for an extra week. So I was gone for six weeks, the longest time I've ever been away from home or really away from work. And if I was blind and didn't pay attention and it closed my eyes, which isn't the case because I still worked. And I'd left when 10-year treasuries were, call it 0.8%. So 10-year US government bonds being around 0.8% saw the incredible rise in COVID cases, saw the lack of dissemination of the vaccinations, saw that disaster on Jan 6 around the Capitol building, saw the high-frequency economic reports, poor employment stats, zero inflation, and then walked in in the middle of January to find 10-year treasuries in the 115, 120 area with the stock market taking out new highs and credit spreads hitting new lows. This is what I would have said to you guys, close your eyes, sell your credit risk, hit the bid on stocks, and rates are the only thing that are cheap in this market. So that's a very bond portfolio manager term or jargon. What I'm saying there is I would think at that point that you would want to own the bond market, that right now what I think is happening, Greg, and this is going to get to the hopefully the answer to your question. I think that there is a complete Goldilocks scenario that's being priced into risk-based assets. And I think a lot of it makes sense. We've had a real huge amount of demand destruction over the last year. And there's this pent-up demand to spend at some point when we get back to normal. 
But the problem I see is in most of the research pieces is they are highly optimistic on the disappearance of COVID. While we continue to see new variants every single day, they're very optimistic on the entire population being vaccinated before the end of the second quarter and a complete return to normal in the second half of the year. They're very, very optimistic. And look, there were two things that happened post the election. One, the vaccination news was huge. And two, the Democrats winning the Georgia Senate state runoffs, which gave Biden control of both chambers of the House and also the presidency. And I think that the market has gone to these Goldilocks scenarios where Biden can issue whatever fiscal stimulus he needs. Monetary policy authorities continue to keep policy easy, which I do agree with, a return to normal in the second half, and that we can forget about the fact that we lost almost $2 trillion of growth in the downturn that happened in the second quarter last year, and have only recovered back about $1.5 trillion of those dollars. So I see that there's a huge construct in the market of the combination of fiscal and monetary policy stimulus causing a change in underlying inflation fundamentals from disinflationary pressure to a reflation. But I got to tell you, and Greg, you've been around as long as I have, if not longer. And I mean that really in the politest ways. Thank um, you. <laughs> do not want to insult Greg right now. The inflation boogeyman has been around my entire career. There's always some set of circumstances that's going to recreate inflation. And what I think the bigger picture is that people ignore is that we have transitioned our economy from a manufacturing-based economy to a service-based. There's huge entitlements. We've seen this movie happen in Japan 35 years ago. We saw it happen in Europe 25 years ago, and we're seeing it happen in North America over the last 10 years. These are aging economies that are going to continue to produce growth that's below the conceptual 3% good growth line. And inflation is going to be very difficult to move seriously higher. So when I take a step back and I look at the very short-term move that's happened in the market where interest rates have backed up 30, 35 basis points off an 80 basis point base, which is a big move, I think it's crazy to me. And then I, at the same time, I stare at credit spreads. So if I look at the how much you're getting paid today to be in high yield, so let me just run that story. So high yield, and for your clients, if you look at an entire benchmark and they can take a weighted average of all the yields and all the underlying government bonds and they can produce what is the weighted average extra spread you get to invest in the high yield market, well, that number was in the low 330s approaching the COVID economy. In March, it blew out to 1100 So the credit risk premium to lend money to high yield went from a little over 3% to over 11% as the market tried to digest terrible liquidity in the markets. The Fed came in with a bazooka in March, and then they followed it up with an absolute nuclear weapon in April. And what I'm talking about is the Fed not only committed to zero interest rates, but also decided not only will they buy treasury securities and mortgage-backed securities, but they would also buy corporate bonds. And then in April, we will not only buy corporate bonds, but we'll also buy corporate bonds that have been downgraded to double B, which is below investment grade or junk status. And we're going to support the high-yield market through purchases of high-yield ETFs. Well, I think we've all lived through the last 10 years of don't fight the Fed. Everybody closed their eyes and bought high-yield credit and all kinds of different credit. And I think the construct there is the Fed needed to provide a backstop so that the markets could trade because there was no liquidity. I could go on a long story of why liquidity dried up in corporate bond markets over the last 10 years, but let's just chalk it up to re-regulation after the great financial crisis took away the incentive for banks to trade 
proprietary positions, locking up the bond market as issuance grew and grew and grew over the last 10 years because of easy monetary policy. So what we saw was a reversal of the liquidity premium that was built into the market out to 1100. And today we're back at 350 basis points. We're sitting 20 basis points wider than where we were pre-COVID. And what I can tell you guys is over the last 12 months, despite all the Goldilocks scenarios, the economy is awful. Companies have seen nothing but their leverage turns move higher. We've seen downgrades greatly exceed upgrades. We've seen a default cycle that's accumulated already to 6%. We had $215 billion worth of triple B bonds transition into the double B or into the high yield space. And here we sit a year later with no improvement in cash flow or cash flow generation, and you get paid 4% now to lend money to high yield companies. In my mind, that just doesn't play. So when I stand here and I see the equity guys shouting at the top of their lungs about a reflation trade, and you can look through 2020 and interest rates are going to move higher. I have a hard time getting my head around it because one, I don't see the impetus for inflation or any of the signals. Core inflation in the United States is still well below the 2% target at 1.35 or 1.37%. CPI in Canada on a year-over-year basis is 1%. There is no inflation. And I don't want to say to everybody, I don't recognize the theoretical bias. If you print tons of money and then you add fiscal stimulus, you could create the capacity constraints necessary to create an inflation spiral. But I think the best we're going to get is a move in inflation back to around 2%, in which case you should be happy to own bonds here because the government or the risk-free bonds are the only thing that's going to counter-correlate. Now, as rich as I just described high yield spreads, you make the same argument on equities. The equity market's trading with them. I don't know what the number is today. It's like a 30 multiple, which to me just has put forward so much of the returns that we could get over time if everything happens perfectly, like COVID goes away and the vaccines work and we get back to a normal situation and Biden's able to put through compelling fiscal stimulus, even though he has a razor thin majority in Senate. So I don't want to sound like the doomsday guy because it's awful being bearish. It's awful always rooting against the market or whatever that means. But what I'm trying to say is that risk assets right now, in my mind, are priced to perfection. Rates are cheap. So for your clients that are concerned about higher rates on the back of an inflation trade, because the equity research analyst at firm A says that that's the case, I dispute it all day long. I think you still need to have fixed income. I still think you need an element of core fixed income in your portfolio. And I think the concept of modern portfolio theory still applies where you want to diversify your risk and counter correlating assets. And how much your bonds are going to counter correlate equity market volatility is going to be dependent on two things, how much credit risk is embedded and how much duration you have. Let me summarize this in language that my parents could follow because this is very technical and it's good, which I really appreciate. But what I'm hearing and tell me if I'm right or wrong, and we're going to have to wrap this up pretty soon, but Something that Greg and I have always talked to investors about is you own bonds for safety, so own safe bonds. Things that are higher risk, don't own those. Instead, maybe adjust how much you have in equities. Is that a fair statement to say? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think if I said it differently or tried to repeat it back to you is you have bonds in your portfolio for a reason. They're for the three things we talked about, downside protection, enhancement of income, and to provide counter-correlation equity market volatility. If you own risky bonds, You're just owning the same direction as equities without the same return potential. 
you may as well just own stocks or adjust your stock positions. I couldn't agree more with you. I think that what you want to own is something that's going to actually provide you a, an accelerating rate of return against an equity market drawdown. Okay, listen, I have a quick speed round I want to take you through if you're game for it. Just to wrap I'm up here, unless, everything. Greg, is there anything else you want to add before we got into the speed round? No, the only thing I'd like to add, and we'll talk about it, I'm sure, after we're done the speed round, is there's obviously so much more to cover, Mark. So we're going to be inviting you back, if that's okay with you, in a future <laughs> episode to pick up where we left off before we get into the speed round. I'd love to. I love doing this stuff, guys. It's fun. That's well, great. We'll see how you do at the speed round, and then we'll decide if you're welcome back or not. Just joking. You're always welcome back. <laughs> it's like, just so you guys, everybody on the line knows when these guys did their due diligence on me, which as good brokers, they do on every single mutual fund company that they use their products for. They made me do a Jenga puzzle. That's right. I can't remember if I failed or passed that test. But anyway, oh, no, you did well. Yeah, you did well. Yeah. <laughs> hey, you're still here, so you must have done okay. <laughs> Question one. What do you do for fun when you're not working? I play a ton of guitar, spend time with my wife. My kids are old and they're not at the age where they want to spend time with me. Perfect. Play guitar. Perfect. And any books you're reading right now for fun or for business? While I was away in the UK, I actually read six books. Three of them were Ken Follett books, which were pleasure reading called Guilty Pleasure. But I did read a book by Leon Uris, and I'm failing on the name right now. It was one of the last ones he wrote, and it was strangely written 20 years ago. It was about a U.S. presidential election year where the current president was willing to do a lot of crazy things to win re-election. It felt an awful lot like the current situation. I just can't remember the name of the book, guys. Sorry, it was by Leon Uris. It was one of the last books he wrote. Perfect. All right, Greg, you got one? Sure. What do you watch? Are you a Netflix or a binge watcher? And if so, what are you watching these days? So again, spent a lot of time in the UK. You guys are going to love this. I watched 16 seasons of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia because I do like 30-minute humor. And I enjoyed every second of it. I watched a boatload of documentaries by an English guy named Matt Therrow, who I I thought was just incredible and very interesting. And then my favorite thing that I watched was the Formula One documentary on Netflix, which is covering two seasons. Now, and I'll tell you guys, I'm not a Formula One fan, but I am now. Like I I just found the whole thing so intriguing. (laughs) Fantastic. I think the follow-up to that one is Talladega Nights. Isn't that the... Ford V Ferrari was probably a little bit more close. Yeah. Talladega Nights is always on the recommended list. There's no two ways about it. Okay. What about Leafs or Flames? Come on, guys. I'm from Toronto. Leafs. Flames. Okay. Stampeders, Riders, or Argonauts? Oh, God. That's a hard one. No, it's not. It's Riders all the time, Mark. You're talking to two people from Saskatchewan. Yeah. Yeah, I apologize, guys. You're right. You know what? In fairness, the Rider jersey is, I think, emblematic of Canada. I love that jersey. (laughs) Did you see any in the UK? <laughs> no, I didn't, but I've seen them in Vegas and a million places around the world where you wouldn't expect them. Greg, you got one last one? Here's the last one. And this is Colin's favorite question for somebody who's not from Saskatchewan. What is a bunny hug? No idea, fellas. <laughs> I'm from Saskatchewan. I had never oh, heard gosh. of it, Colin. At some point, <laughs> we are going to ask that question and somebody's going to know what I'm talking about. But it is just a hooded sweatshirt with a pocket on the front. It's... Actually, call them exactly what you're talking about. It's what I wear probably 90% of the time. I actually put a v neck sweater on for you guys, say, in case this was video. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's good. Well, listen, Mark, thanks for joining us today and getting technical on bonds. That was good. And I know we could definitely talk for days about this, and I know you can as well. So, that we will have you back for another show if that's all right. Listen, guys, it's an honor to do this with you guys. I love this kind of stuff and happy to do it again. Awesome. 
Thanks for joining us, Mark. It was great. We appreciate your time. Uh, you're welcome. Thank you, too. Take care. Well, Greg, that was a great discussion with Mark Goldfried, Chief Investment Officer and Head of Fixed Income at Canoe Financial. Mark's a very knowledgeable guy. I always enjoy hearing him. He gets down into the weeds because that's what he does. And it's great to have a guy like that on our team and helping us out with what do we do about fixed income. Well, and I want to warn the listeners, like, look, if at some point you weren't able to follow along with some of the technical discussion, that was a very technical discussion. And it's just highlights that the bond market is a very technical market. And that's why we have jobs. Well, that's right. And listen, the stock market itself is quite complex as well as most people know. But a lot of people, it's pretty straightforward. I'm going to buy a stock at this price. And what are the odds that it's going to be trading at a higher price at some point in the future? Bonds, it's a totally different game. And so there's a lot to talk about. And if anybody has any questions coming out of this podcast, they should certainly give us a shout. We can walk through some of those concepts. Well, and Greg, we're going to carry on with this theme on our next episode. Next episode, we have Eric Ristabin joining us. Eric is the Chief Investment Officer of Russell Investments, a small firm that manages, I don't know, $400 billion or something like that. That's right. So that should be a fun one. That'll be great. Really looking forward to that one as well. All right. Well then, till next time. Till next time. Thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc., 2020.